Welcome to the Sefsuck podcast, Into the Blueprint, where we delve into the abstract concept of identity and how it carves distinctive experiences in individuals in the world of engineering. We discuss topics that concern diversity and inclusivity and dissect the multifaceted nature of the industry and stigmas that may live within it. Listen along to hear stories and insights ranging from all walks of life, including students at university or those grinding the 9 to 5 engineering career. So sit back and enjoy the podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the Subsolve podcast, Into the Blueprint. I'm your host, Frida Han. And I'm your co-host, Louis Chen. And today we are joined by our two guest speakers, Travis Waller and Robert Kerr from the UNSW School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. So before we get started, I uh, would first like to acknowledge the medical people who are the traditional custodians of the land. So we'd like to pay our respect to elders, both past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal people listening today. Yep. So in this episode, we'll be discussing ethics in engineering and the implication of education and ethics for the future of engineering disciplines. We open up dialogue with professionals about the field of engineering and how it defines the values and principles that shape the practice, ultimately giving insights into how the industry could approach ethics in terms of technical, professional and social. We also look into uh, the professional and academic perspective of engineering ethics and invite new perspectives into interpreting and adopting ethics addressing diversity and inclusion in the STEM field. So I'll introduce our speakers today. So our first speaker is Travis Waller and is a professor and the head of school of civil and environmental engineering at UNSW. In his time at the school, he has been the previous deputy of de, uh, sorry deputy dean of research and founding director of the research center for integrated transport innovation. Travis is currently leading the school on a new vision of civil uh, ethical civil infrastructure and sustainable environments. In addition to the school initiative. Travis has had a long track record of ethics and equity in his transport and logistics systems research, including early collaboration with one of the largest planning organizations in the US to respond to the presidential executive order on environmental justice to devise a new methodology to rank projects considering disadvantaged groups. His more recent collaborations include an ARC linkage project with OzHarvest on planning and operational models for food rescue and delivery to, to the poor an ARC Discovery Grant on quantifying ethics-related metrics for transport network systems. Hi, Travis, and thank you for joining us today. And our second speaker, Robert Kerr, is a professor of practice at UNSW and was consultant principal and director in Arab Group for 37 years, serving as the chair of Arab's Australasia region from 2004 to 2010, and chair of Arab's Arab's UK, Middle East, and Africa region from 2010 to 2013. In the for-purpose sector, Robert is the chair of Red R Australia, chair of steering committee of the Community of Practice of Humanitarian Engineering at Engineers Australia, and chair of common purpose Asia Pacific. In terms of achievements related to ethics, Robert has provided leadership coaching and mentoring on ethic behavior, uh, ethical behavior for many engineers and non-engineers, both within and outside of Arab. In 2008, as a global board member of Arab, Robert was appointed the first group ethics director, where he oversaw policy development, uh, develop, uh, development, member training, and ethical skill development. He was also involved in investigations of issues around ethical and unethical behavior and resolutions to those investigations. Uh, hi, Robert, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure and great to be here. Thank you. 
That's great. So to the audience listening live on Instagram and Facebook, we'll be asking and taking questions at the end. So make sure to stick around till then. There will also be a link to the Google Forms so uh, in, the go uh, in the comments section. So you can ask anonymously then. So I wanted to start off with asking or start off the topic. So what is ethics and engineering? Uh, Travis, did you want to head this one off? Sure. So ethics and engineering. So ethics is really about deep frameworks of thinking based on centuries of analysis. And, and what can be uh, at first surprising uh, is ethics is a body of knowledge. Uh, there's millions of papers published in ethics. It's like saying, I want to learn calculus. I want to learn ethics. So it's frameworks of thinking about how to be consistent and actually deliver on your values. Whereas values might be, I value equality. I value justice. I value a healthy lifestyle, whatever they are. How can you actually ensure that your actions conform to those values? And there's a lot of deep knowledge. And one point I often like to draw out here is as engineers, it's always important to reflect on the fact that engineering is a profession and there's a distinction between a job and a profession professions have ethics that's the main thing that differentiates them and so whenever sort of losing the way on this it might help to make an analogy to other great professions like medicine and law we all understand there are a lot of ethical issues in medicine we're dealing with those in the world right now and that's why it's important for doctors to embrace ethics. The same for attorneys and the legal code. And we engineers are the custodians of technology, infrastructure, and the environment that impacts human experience to such a great degree. We're, de we're designing the future. We need to continually enhance our understanding and learning within ethics to that same professional degree. Mm, that's a very in-depth, um, I guess, description of ethics and in engineering in particular. Um, Robert, did you have anything to add on to that? Well, I, th I think there's two things. I mean, it, it, one to say what ethics is not, and that is it is it is not what to think. It is is about how to think um, because there's a cultural thread to all of this and and a perception issue. And, and different cultures may view these things in different ways. So it's not about, it's not about telling people what to think. It's about... Um, you know, how to go about that process of thinking. And the other thing I would just add is that it's not always easy and it's actually it could be quite challenging. So, you know, reach out for help and, and talk to people who can help you uh, traverse this, this, this quite, quite difficult field. Hmm. Um, I'll move on. Um, as we're talking about engineering, more, uh, we're really uh, more specifically, we'll be talking about like the industry and such. So has, I guess, as a situational uh, way to apply ethics, has there been a situation or project that you've worked on where, uh, which more evidently called on you to deeply consider these ethical implications or way of thinking uh, for an engineering design or circumstance? Um, Robert, did you want to head this one off? Yeah, happy, happy to happy to share a few um, a few comments on this. Um, look, the answer is there have been many occasions through my career, which now stretches fifty years, uh, where this has been the case, and I can relate to to a number of them. So let let me let me start. I mean, one of the early ones with my company was when one of our officers decided to do some work on a a nuclear submarine base. They weren't they weren't working on the 
on the weapons or, or, or the submarines, but they were doing site works associated with this. It was, a, it was a time when the campaign for nuclear disarmament was really quite strong, particularly in Europe. And there was a lot of objection to working on that project. In fact, a number of senior members of the staff immediately resigned over it. Now, there was nothing illegal about the work that was being done, but it 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 it, it didn't appeal. It, it resonated negatively from an ethical point of view with a lot of our staff, and that led to the introduction of the thing called we, we call the sensitive project, which is any project which may have a, a negative ethical impact on people needs to go through a process. Now, it doesn't tell you what the answer is, but merely that you need to go through 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 a process to determine whether you should or should not be involved. That that was the that was the very first one I can think of. But another example I'll give you is when our, our office in Europe, um, Milan as it was, wanted to do it wanted to build a tobacco factory. Well they, they didn't want to build a tobacco factory. They offered the design work on a tobacco factory. And it was a time when there was it was particularly tough. And, and they looked at it and they thought, if we don't take this work, we we may have to lay off half our people. And so they were caught in this dilemma. You know, do we do work that probably a lot of our people don't want to do because cigarettes, health impacts, all that, but quite legal work? Or do we want to, you know, lose half of our staff? And they went through a process. Interestingly enough, that process eventually reached the group board, which I was on, and, and we we intervened. But in the end, we decided that they'd gone through an appropriate process. We didn't agree with their decision, but they went through an appropriate process and we left that decision stand. The, the, the rider to all of that is that in, in the end, they did bid the work. They didn't get it. But in the end, nor did they have to lay off the 50% of the staff because other work came in. So I think that just illustrates the, the difficult dimensions and how things can play out in, in quite unexpected ways. Mm. I could go on, but I think that's <laughs> probably enough. <laughs> no, that's that's good. That's I think that's a really like hands-on way to, I guess, understand how ethics or eco- ethical thinking can be applied or, I guess, utilised in that way. Uh, Travis, do you have any experiences from yourself that you want to add on? I'll, I'll mention just one uh, because it's it's ethics and these concepts are very important even when it may not be thought of as a dilemma. And I think that's – in. Robert's brilliant always at, at pointing out these very big decisions that we have to make, but also when it comes to, to new environments. So that one of the projects you mentioned was the, the Oz Harvest project. So I was on the research team that, that did this. It was a uh, ARC, Australia Research Council scientific grant, but with industry, but industry in this case was a nonprofit, Oz Harvest, and was working with them to de- develop algorithms to help them in their distribution of food. And it was a very complicated mathematical problem because it's very perishable. They pick it up, they redistribute it to shelters and others, uh, but they they always have more demand than supply because everyone needs this. And they were really struggling with how do we do this fairly and properly? And in the scientific literature, there, there, there was a gap and there wasn't, oh, just consult the textbook and it'll tell you exactly how to solve this problem in a fair, equitable way that's also efficient and scales and allows for the logistic distribution. So it was an entirely new problem, but you had to approach it with an ethical lens. And, and I think it's a great example of 
it's not even a problem. There wasn't a bad outcome. There's only good intentions, but it's still an ethical dilemma because you need to do it properly and fairly. And we could have said, oh, I don't care. Just do whatever's quickest and cheapest and most efficient, but that's not appropriate. And I think that's a lesson for today's and the future's engineers. We need to deliberate. The systems we build scale so quickly. Once they synergize with AI and big data, the things we build as engineers impact the world immediately and they scale up. And if we don't put deep ethical thinking into the design, you can cause massive harm because of how rapidly technology impacts people. And so that, for me, was a massive takeaway of that project. And that's one reason why I always advocate for this style of thinking to permeate throughout all of engineering education, because technology is changing so much, we are building the future in real time. Mm. That's, it's quite confronting uh, as, as, as a, stat, like a static, uh, statistic as well as just a thought. But um, I think it's great that the school is taking this initiative to uh, endeavor upon this um, ethical thinking and impl implementing this into our student uh, experience and educational experience. Um, so it's great having you both on to uh, today uh, because of that, uh, with both of you being co-authors of the report on the civil, ethical civil infrastructure and sustainable environments, um, we can see where the school vision is headed and where the school is headed that way. So I think a lot of our questions today are based on this report as what you, uh, on this report and what you've stated on this report, which is really, when I read through it, was really, um, I guess, really insightful. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's a way to put it. So I think our next question I'm going to go on to is, well, in the report, it was mentioned that diverse groups need to be considered as part of ethical design and ethical engineering. And, and you classified some of the groups, uh, society, client, employee, and the self. Is there also an application of diversity in ethical engineering in relation to how communities uh, identify, for example, race, gender, socioeconomic status, and religion? And if so, how might an engineer approach accounting for these groups in their work? So that's quite a big question. But um, Travis, do you want to start that one off? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I think in the report, what we we're identifying is that you have to consider all of the stakeholders, all of the people that will be impacted by your work. And it, what you do uh, will impact every different group in a different way. One of the things we always like to draw out is that that group also includes you. We, everyone has an obligation to themselves and, and, and that includes your, your self-care and health and, and so on. Uh, but then every other diverse stakeholder uh, and understanding the impact of your work and if some of those groups have an inherent disadvantage and if the work you're doing uh, makes that disadvantage work, well, that has some ethical consideration you really need to put into it. And so how what you're doing impacts through all of these different lenses is, is part of the role of a professional, again, the, the same as the other fields. And so it's really having that broad perspective. And, and there's both a, a, a good natured, we want to be good engineers, good professionals, good you know, individuals in the world and make the world a better place. But it also it will be, and this is the position that we're taking, it will be also about employability. And this is a good development. Society is evolving to the point where firms and professional engineers need to have the skills and the perspectives to justify to the world that your work is doing good, not ill. And that requires both a good mindset, an ethical mindset, but deep technical and ethical skills to do the analysis and the articulation to justify that what you've done is the right thing. And for those that, that don't embrace that, we would argue that 
you will not be employable otherwise. Mm, okay. Um, Robert, do you have anything to add on to that? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I just pay tribute to, to Travis, who is leading this, you know, really quite exciting initiative. Uh, and and when Travis first told me about this, I, I, I have to say I was just so excited about the direction of travel. Uh, I think it's, it's fantastic. It's commendable. And I've been challenged by a couple of recent graduates as to how we might be going about this recently. And um, because they'd been subjected to ethical training where they had graduated and they didn't think very much of it. And so I sat down with them for several, several hours and we talked about what this would mean. And, and when we'd finished that conversation and realising that we hadn't we haven't actually finished designing this yet. In fact, we, we're halfway through a workshop working out how we're going to go about that. Um, they they were quite comforted by the approach that we were taking. So that's the first thing. The the um, the other thing is I, I just you know one of the things as an employer because you know I, I worked thirty seven years as a uh, and, and you know as a consulting engineer and and five years uh, in government as well as the other things I may have done. And um, we tend to look for what I call T-shaped people. Now, people with a deep expertise in, in one or two areas, but also a breadth of understanding of the way in which what they're doing fits in, what's the context and how it fits in. So all of the things you talked about, um, you know, play to that, to that thing. How do you appreciate how what you're doing fits in to the system that we're working for? And, and, and this, the final point to add is, and I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who wrote that um, that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas uh, in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Uh, and one example, one should, by example, be able to see that things are, are hopeless, yet be determined to make them otherwise. So I, th I think what we're trying to achieve here is the ability to consider differing points of view in a range of different people still function and find a way to resolve that even sometimes when you might think it's hopeless but you know the situation is hopeless we must take the next step mm. so yeah as so just to as a way of condensing all these different groups and cultures and ways of thinking it's yeah, I can imagine it's very hard to do so and like as an upcoming engineer or as the students going into the engineering field could be quite I guess very confronting or very um hard to manage to do so so I think one of um, my next question leading on from this is well the report emphasizes the need for engineers to not only have technical skills but to develop this ability to make good judgment as you mentioned Robert and Travis mm. um, so which is a mechanism that uh, to promote this ethical engineering so how would you advise students to start developing this skill um, in their day-to-day -day life in university work maybe outside of what a course may teach them um, Robert did you want to start this one off this time well, I, I, guess, I guess I'd start by saying read, read very widely. You're getting a bit of an echo there somewhere. Uh, read very widely. Um, talk to a lot of people, uh, um, especially listen, listen generatively. In other words, don't, you know, very often we spend time and we'll ask someone a question and as soon as they start responding, we'll be dismissing in our minds what they're saying because we disagree with it. Come back to what F. Scott Fitzgerald said, you know. 
entertain two ideas. Um, we, we live in an age with social media and the like where, you know, if someone on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram says something we don't like, we, we block them or we discount them. And there's a polarisation, which I don't think is, is helpful. So I would say, you know, read widely, observe, reflect, think about, think about what's going on. And then when you've, when you've done that in terms of appreciating, well, why is that group doing that? Why is that group doing that? Why don't they come together? Empathise with those people as to why they might be thinking that way and what does that mean in terms of what you're trying to do as, and, and in as broad a way as possible. I think the, the danger of, and, and some engineers do this, where they think, oh, no, we're just there to solve this problem. Uh, what if you're not solving the right problem? You know, so so is it the right problem? Help your client or the community or whoever it is to actually make sure they're addressing the right problem and think very broadly about what those solutions are. So I would just encourage you to, to read, talk, listen, uh, and do those sorts of things. Yeah. Like, oftentimes I hear, like, they, I guess the definition of engineering is to find the most cheapest solution, like to find the most quick solution. And oftentimes you don't hear this consideration or synthesis of um, cultures or the client that we're thinking about or society. So that's a good point to, um, to read widely and uh, acknowledge these different um, groups. Uh, Travis, do you have anything you want to add on as well? Yeah, I, I think the last point that you made was exactly the right one. I, I've heard that over my career many times from many people that engineering is about designing the cheapest solution and, and those people are wrong and introduce them to me, and I'm happy to say that to the face, they're wrong. Um, that it's a very narrow mindset, and they don't understand their own profession. Um, some people will hate me for that, sorry. Um, it's That's like sort of saying a doctor's job is to cut into you the cheapest way possible. No, that's not. Um, it's one consideration of many. Affordability is a, a key consideration because things just won't be practical and we can't deliver a solution if they cost way too much, but it's not the sole dimension and it reduces us to be a non-profession if we accept that as being our only objective. And so we have to have that broad mindset, but then as, as Robert said, we also have to have technical depth. And that's really the role of the engineer is to bridge that breadth to the depth. We need to know what our area of depth is and try not to stray from it when we're providing technical advisory or design, but to have a broad perspective at all times. And if we lose either of those, we should not be allowed to call ourselves an engineer. We need both. We're not a profession if we lack breadth, and we're not engineers if we lack depth. So we have to have both and bridge between them. And that's difficult. That's a massive challenge, but that's why it's a valuable thing to become an engineer. And we do it by learning our technical skills, but also learning the breadth of perspective. And we get that in exactly the way Robert was saying, by reading and by discussion, and in particular, discussing things with people who hold a radically different perspective of your own. Learning to have a civilized discussion with someone who disagrees with you fundamentally, but to do it in a, you don't need to agree with them and they don't need to agree with you, but to be able to have that discussion in a civil manner is an absolute bare minimum. If you cannot do that, you should also not be allowed to call yourself an engineer because you're not a professional anyway, so you're not a professional engineer. So part of professionalism is having discussions with people who hold diametrically opposed views and to do it in a civil, constructive manner. And you may walk away saying, I don't agree with you and you don't agree with me, but it was a civil process. You have to learn to do that. If you don't, sorry, you're, you're not a professional engineer. Yeah, 
Mm. Uh, to be mature to synthesize information. Yeah, that's that's mm. quite a point. Mm. Yeah. Very well said. Could I, could I just add to that? I mean, it's it's one of the reasons if you, if you go back and look at what they call the great salons that used to be held in Paris by women, by the way, uh, in Paris, not to have a debate where there might be winners or losers, but where there would be a conversation, a civil conversation to understand what the issues are and to exchange views. And and I'm a strong advocate of, of the salon process, as well as debate, as well as argument. Both need to be there. But one of the things about understanding what the full dimensions of the problem you might not have thought about by listening constructively and generatively to people. Argument can be fun. <laughs> can be fun. Not fun if you don't understand what you're talking about, though. So, I guess as a tangible way for students to understand how this a vision you, the both of you are trying to achieve for the school. Um, so, like, currently at a tertiary level, what would you like to see or what are you trying to see implemented into, the de like, the degree structure for students like us to facilitate the shift in ethical thinking? Um, uh, Robert, did you want to start this one off? I think there's a number of components to this. One, there's got to be an element where you, you try and understand the philosophy of ethics, the, the, the rudimentary tools, the way in which you go about it. So there needs to be an element of that. And I can hear everyone say, oh, no, more content and not enough room to put it in, get that. But there does need to be some understanding of that, and we, we're working through to see what that is and how that might fit in. And notice I said and rather than but. And you need to build into all the other elements of, of the education, the way in which ethical uh, thinking unfolds itself. Now, that might be not as big a deal in mechanics of solids as it might be in some of the other subjects you're doing. But one thing you can't do is to turn the ethics switch on and off as you walk into the ethics class. You know, you don't just go, and this was the criticism that came from those, those recent graduates I talked about. They said, we did a two-hour stream on what ethics is, and, and that's all there was. And, and the rest of the course was untouched. And it was just a matter of ticking a box to say, yes, we've done ethics training. That's not ethics training. It needs to permeate the conversation that we've had within the school is that needs this ethics needs to permeate everything we do, every, every way. It'll impact on what we teach, how we teach it. It'll impact on our research. It'll impact on the consulting work we do. And it'll impact on our behaviours. Now, I'll just add to that that, you will from time to time make a mistake. You know, we're human. We, you won't always get it right, which brings you to the point where reflecting on what you did and what the consequences of that were are part of the ethical way of thinking. And if you realise that you've done something that actually wasn't as good as it should have been, tidy it up. Go back, have a conversation with the people where things have gone wrong and, and point out that you you... Yeah, you slipped up and, and you corrected it. Uh, so I, I think it's all of that needs to be built into what we're doing, and that will that will develop a, a fundamental change in the way in which we educate. I don't know whether you want to add anything, Travis. Yeah, I, mainly to, to echo, and, and I agree with all of those points completely, and that is something I think to stress in all of this. Perfection is never perfect, and if people demand perfection, it's a non-starter. Stop. Just 
literally it's not worth trying because you'll fail. Uh, but being able to deal with mistakes is a core part of an ethical approach in, in deliberation and thinking, because if, if you can't admit mistakes, also it, 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 that is truly hopeless without a salvation. So identifying that, that is, but to try to make every project better, every activity better and to constantly improve. Um, and that's, that does have an impact on it. Uh, the education side heavily as well. So, so two key aspects around that. One is uh, uh, in, continually increase the engagement of the teaching because these involve deep thinking. It's not we without losing the technical. Here's how to do this. Here's how to this to uh, um, experimental or methodological method. But then also here's a perspective we need to think about in the ramifications and that requires discussion and analysis. So that changes a little bit around the modes of teaching, um, but also integrating that into practical sort of case studies so that it can become tangible because that, we don't want to be too abstract with this stuff either. Uh, and then em embracing that these are positive things for our careers. Um, there's two realities I think that every single one of us are going to face, especially if you're in university right now or planning to be or have recently. Um, technical work is increasingly commoditized and it will be even more so. The thing that's harder to commoditize is the ethical thinking. A human being still has to decide between what's right and wrong. Your technical work will be commoditized over your career. Your ethical work will not. And so your long-term career will probably hinge on that ethical side in addition to the technical. But to keep the technical fresh, you'll have to continually top it up. And previous generations may not have had to do that. Also, on the ethical side, we will continually have to top it up. Society is evolving. Culture is evolving. We care about things now today, rightfully so, that maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago were not thought about as much. That trend is likely to continue. These, these issues that you'll need to consider will change. I mean, we didn't consider climate change 30 or 40 years ago. Well, some people did, but we didn't listen to them. Uh, now, now people will change uh, and need to consider that much more holistically. Mm. Your point about this uh, continued education or this mm. continued, um, yeah, so this continued education uh, on ethical thinking like through throughout an engineer's lifetime. Um, so would that suggest, I guess, um, at an industry level there should be uh, I guess, ethical training or updated ethical training for engineers as well? Yeah, I, I think in terms of considerations, and Robert's point um, is exactly right. And things that were, yeah, and as Robert said, some people were saying them, but but they weren't listened to as much and should have been. That trend will continue. All signs point to that, but that's a good thing. We all live in a better world continually because of that progress. But the speed of it is it's not generational anymore. Within one lifetime, we're all having to update in real time our understanding of what's important to society. And that means this stuff, and that means keeping in touch with this stuff as it evolves. And, and very much to your point, Frida, I mean, I, I, I've involved in an expert panel assisting and changing Australia's building regulations at the moment. And, and yesterday, from this very seat, I was having a discussion with that expert panel on the introduction of a need for ethical training and ethical testing uh, of the people who work in applying our building codes. And so you're, you're absolutely right. This will form a fundamental part of all of the things we do. Mm. But um, the one thing, the last oh, yeah. thing I'll say on that is that we should, as in professional engineers, embrace this. We may see it as a burden, but 
it increases our value to society. It increases our role within society. It increases the good that we can do to the world. We should embrace it as a privilege, not a burden that we will be at the forefront of de designing and building the future. And by empowering ourselves with these concepts, we will be even more effective as leaders, uh, being the leaders of that technology infrastructure in the environment space. Those are our domains and we should embrace this. Hmm, that's that's a good point to be a, a cognizant of what you're responsible of or what your role as an engineer in the modern day is. Exactly. <laughs> that may be whether that be addressing social uh, problems or I guess climate change or anything, just being aware of these um, implications also. Yeah, um, we'll move on to the next question then. So what challenges do you see potentially arising in the future if we were not to address these ethical situation or challenges or address this gap in knowledge of, of ethical thinking or ethical uh, ways of thinking. Um, how could you see these challenges become increasingly difficult? So if we didn't handle these issues, uh, Travis, do you want to head this one off this time? Sure. I mean, this one, I mean, you can go some very dystopian black mirror outcomes uh, potentially, uh, because we design those systems, we take care of the environment, uh, we're looking after the infrastructure. What is the infrastructure? It's it's literally all of the physical world around us. And technology meets infrastructure. And what is the difference? You know, I often joke, if you have one drone, that's a piece of, of technology. But if you have 100 drones flying around observing people in real time, that becomes infrastructure. Someone has to maintain the data, produce those, the things themselves, um, and engineers design and think through all of this stuff. And typically we work at a pace much quicker than politicians and policymakers. And so the technology is so far out in front of where the laws and societal values are. And if we're designing these things and putting them out in the world and maintaining the physicality of it um, and impacting the environment and life, that's where you start getting massive privacy breaches. That's where you really oppressive uh uh, systems, you know, like social credit systems and so on that can really uh, be a massive detriment. And that, unfortunately, we live in the generation where systems and technology and infrastructure advance at a pace where one poorly thought out idea can start from nothing to becoming a system that touches every single human being's life very quickly. And so mistakes can scale up and cause massive harm much quicker than the, the watchers of policy can respond to. So you would hope that the people designing these things and thinking about these things are deliberating and really reflecting on how their creations and their designs will interact with all of these stakeholder groups. Um, and, and so that's really, we live in a generation of rapid, rapid, rapid change. And that I see as the biggest challenge, just the speed of it. Robert, did you want to add anything on to that? Well, perhaps coming from the, the other direction, crises magnifies this and exacerbates the problems. I mean, merely look at the pandemic we're going through at the moment. The, the, the cracks in society, the cracks in how we do things and go about it are magnified and exacerbated by these sorts of things. And, and, and matters that would have been relatively easy to resolve, arguably, if we could meet face-to-face -face and travel and those sorts of things, immediately become more difficult. So I, I totally agree with Travis. So these two things, the rapid build-up of these things and scale-up of these things, but also coming in the other direction, climate change, uh, um, uh, pandemics. Uh, I don't think we've seen the last of our current pandemic 
and I'm sure there'll be more. And they will exacerbate all of these problems. Definitely. On that point about um, COVID-19 as well, when researching for this topic, a lot of papers came out about ethics, COVID-19, engineering, all related in that one scope. It's, it's quite, so it, it's really like, um, you can see how, I guess, what's the word, forefront this issue is to, I guess, us as engineers or as you guys as engineers. Um, I think one thing I did want to ask, though, you, as you said, lawmaking is um, is quite a bit bef- behind what technology is at, at the moment. Um, and in that way, politics and engineering kind of, there's an interplay between them. And sometimes it's not always, they're not always in line or gelled or in the same thought process. So in a way, I would like to ask, like, how does politics play into engineering, or is that how does engineering translate? How do engineers translate themselves to politics so that they understand and then they then can communicate to society how they should conduct themselves that way? I guess, Robert, did you want to start that one off? I think it's really great that you refer to the politics because one of the one of the questions that occurs to me is how how do how do we better understand how these things play? And I, I can think of no better example than for us to observe and reflect upon what we're seeing in the political sphere. So that's that's the first point I'd make. You're right, Frida, to put your hand on that and say, um, that's not going so well, what do we do better? That's one point. The second point is there are very few engineers involved in politics in Australia. Um, and, in fact, I once asked the engineers in Australia how many and they couldn't answer the question, which itself, which itself is a problem. So more engineers need to get to the top table and have those conversations. They, and they need to speak in a language that can be understood. I think one of, the, one of the mistakes engineers often make is they're comfortable in the jargon and the way in which we talk about things, but they don't speak in a way that, that, that can be understood by people who need to understand. Now, the responsibility for being understood doesn't lie with the person you're, you're talking at or to, or with, which is better, but the responsibility lies with, with you to find a way, uh, and <laughs> to quote somebody else, I, and I'm at the moment involved in, in, in homeschooling of my seven-year-old granddaughter, and I think Einstein said, if you can't explain something to a six-year-old child, you don't understand what you're trying to convey, and, and I now realise I I am not competent to explain most things because in trying to explain it to my seven-year-old granddaughter, I'm, I'm not always doing a fantastic job. So you have to actually work out how you're going to communicate. So get to the top table, become involved in politics, and speak a language that people can understand so they can really perceive what the challenges are and what possible solutions there might be to work through with those people. Yeah. Um, Travis, do you want to add on to that? Yeah, that that is an amazing point. I think we should get a clip of that at some point and just just give that to engineers because that's exactly right. The only thing I can add to that is a bit of a, a an ivory tower abstraction, which is what I'm good at. Um, so so the reason I can give the reason why Robert from a academic point of view is absolutely correct goes back to the pace of change. Historically, the way this has worked out is engineers do stuff out in the world. And it's a live experiment and we see it play out over time. And if it goes well, great. A lot of people, GDP goes up and a lot of people make resources. Uh, If it goes poorly, it's moving slowly, slowly enough that 
policymakers and lawmakers can say, oh, we need a law about that to rein it back in. It's gone too far. And that worked throughout thousands of years of civilization and history because things move slowly enough where it would do harm, but a level of harm that society more or less tolerated. Maybe it shouldn't have, but it did. Uh, now things move so quickly, we, that is not an acceptable solution. We, it's not a wait and see. It's not a let it play out because it scales too quickly. So what do you do if you can't let the live experiments play out? You do what Robert exactly just now said. You have people that understand the technical depth at that table with everyone else. We're not saying everyone needs to be an engineer, but you have enough at the table where you can have a deep conversation about the likely consequences of something before you see it happening out in the world. Because if you wait even a year, it might impact 7 billion people all at once. Correct. Mm, and that's quite a scary but exciting thought to think about. Um, I'll head over to Louis now. If there was any questions uh, from the students, um, did you have any questions from the audience? Uh, yep. So we've got a few um, coming from the audience. Um, first one is, uh, as students, we are only really involved in the technical side of engineering. So when we eventually work in the field, what does engaging with stakeholders and discussing ethics actually involve? So, um, Travis, if you'd like to... Um, this one? Oh, no, that's a, that's a great question. And these sort of things are what we are wanting to change. So we're wanting to expose more to those, those concepts. And really, it, it comes back to the approaching conversations in a respectful manner where they won't have your technical expertise and many things that they say, you'll be able, you would quickly just instinctively want to say, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. It doesn't work that way. And, and you have to not do any of that because it, it almost never helps. And so learning to listen and try to say, even if they're getting a bunch of stuff wrong, they, there's some kernel that they're wanting to convey that I need to understand. There's some value they're bringing that I need to see through all of the issues that I want to correct, but I'll put those off to the side for a while and see what it is that they're wanting to convey at the core of it. And then finding a, a constructive way of addressing back if there are actual flaws in the things that they're saying. And so it's really about having respectful conversations where you're absorbing as much of you can as you can, synthesizing it and then responding in a constructive way that keeps them on board and helps and helps both of you do something productive. And it's a skill. What I just described and, and Robert's far better at it than I, so can uh, comment much further, but that's at least how I view these stakeholder engagements. But Robert? I, I I agree with that. I mean, the the thing all about all about that is to try and understand what what the objectives of these other stakeholder groups are. To empathise with them. I mean, to as they say, to put yourself in their shoes, to uh, stand in their position and say, if I were they, and 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 this engineer was approaching me, what would what would I think, and how would I need how would I need to be persuaded? So I think that. And look, some people struggle with empathy, but most people don't struggle with empathy. They're capable of being empathetic. And it's just a question of saying, if I was in that position, what would I be thinking about right now? And I think if you do that and just practice it, just practice it. And you won't get it right to start with, but just keep practicing it until you get it right. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's uh, very nuanced. Uh, no, there's not really like a clear cut answer yeah. to anything. The, the, the thing you'll find out about engineering is that very little is actually clear cut. You know, it, it, is, it is difficult, it is complex, and it's not always clear cut, which is why we've got such, in, such in, intelligent people in, enlisted in our courses doing the subject. That's, that's why you're here. 
because you're capable of doing those sorts of things. That's exactly right. And the only thing I'll add to that is, uh, and the fact that it's not clear cut is our saving grace, because if it is clear cut within our lifetime, it will be automated. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. So the second question um, from audience asks, uh, do you think there is going to ever be a way to measure ethics? For instance, like triple bottom line analysis that measure social, environmental and ethical impacts of industries. And do you think this could be something that is problematic, uh, problematic or a good opportunity? So, um, Robert, would you like to head off this one? Uh, look, I think there's a danger in trying to measure everything in a, in a mathematical formulation way. Uh, again, you know, it has been said that we don't always value that that we measure and, you know, we can't always measure that what we value. So I think the real test on this ethical thing, there's actually some very simple tests, very low-level tests, and, and, it, and it's like this. So would I be proud to see what I've just done or the decision I've just taken uh, on the front page of the, of, the, of, the, of the national newspaper or on TV today? Would I be, would I be proud to tell my, my parents, my family, my kids what I've just done? That's a very, very good test. And, you know, today it's called the pub test, which is not a term I like, uh, but, you know, you understand what I'm meaning. So uh, I, I don't think it comes into the, you know, the corporate sustainability measure where we'll be able to tick a box and put a number at the bottom of the thing saying, you know, we, we behaved ethically in 52 cases and, and not ethically in 30, therefore we're okay. It, it's It's... It's about actually conducting yourself in self-analysis. Now, if any organisation is, is, is saying, you know, well, we, we did really well on 90% of our work, but 10% we behaved unethically, you know, sorry, it doesn't work. Yeah, so it's, it's not one of those sorts of things. It's, it's everything has to be, it's, you're either ethical or you're not. And it's not, it's not well, if I get 90%, I'm okay. It's, it's clear cut, but you've got to be ethical. And, but, again, you will make mistakes. And if you make mistakes, tidy them up. Maybe I, I can add to that. I, I agree with, with Robert's sentiment. I, I take a slightly different one on this one. This one's a really tricky one. It goes a little bit to consequentialism versus deontology. I think I know which one Robert is for sure. Um, as with all things, I think I take a balanced. But uh, the if so, if the question was if there are going to be ethics metrics, and I, I that that one's a tricky one for me. Earlier, and this is something that I have changed over my life, and I don't like that. But it, it's reality, and I do think it's I've taken a more mature view now. I used to just dislike the metrification of everything. I think it can suck the soul out. And I think I think Robert may feel that way. And I, I feel that way, but I've become a bit fatalistic in that it will. Like the world will do it and there will be ethics metrics. And and faced with that inevitability, if we accept that as an inevitability, regardless of our actions, we can either fight that, but that's a difficult thing to imagine to fight, because who even do you try to fight? Like you can't. And so I think it is inevitable. So therefore, I have tended to switch my viewpoint 
in a way, or at least my actions 180, my viewpoint the same, but my actions I've switched 180 to start researching ethics metrics. That's actually what my ARC, latest ARC discovery grant literally is. It's on quantifying ethics-based metrics for transport networks. Quite literally, I'm trying to come up with ethics-based metrics, partly because I hate the idea of them. It's like the social credit system, which I think is very worrisome, but it exists. Nothing we can do can make it not exist. Therefore, I think in that reality, the only thing we can do is to research it and so if they're going to come up with one, well, let's come up with a thousand. Let's come up with 10,000. Let's populate it so many that no one can point to one and say, this is the one metric I'm going to define your life. Say, well, no, there's 10,000 and they're all equally good. I get to pick which one defines me. And if there are 10,000 of them, I think the world might be the same. It doesn't matter if they exist or not. If you have so many that you can use in a way that you want to fashion what you regard as an ethical narrative and you do honestly feel it justifies what you're doing, give people the tools to fashion a tailor-made narrative. So I've, I've changed my approach 180 because I view people will come up with them like social credit inevitably. So what we should do is research them a lot, make them as many and as nuanced as possible and then we get a rich landscape that we can make good. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm happy with uh, Travis's approach, and I and I I'm open to the possibility. Uh, but I've always been accused of being a Puritan. <laughs> That's okay. We need you. We need you. We need that vision. <laughs> in fact, I was when I was when I was made the ethics director for Arab. My one of my colleagues who knows me very well. I won't, I won't use the term that he used, but basically he said, you do realise you've just put a Puritan in, in charge, don't you? Meaning everyone, he's about to make your life very difficult. Um, <laughs> we need that. We need that, Robert. Yeah, I guess it just boils down to, um, I guess, if you can't beat them, join them. But then in like a sort of way where it's like, if it's going to happen eventually, might as well help make it like, um, help develop it in a way that is like beneficial to us all. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'll hold him to account, Lewis. And hold him to account, yeah. <laughs> uh, yep, so I think we have time for one more question uh, from the audience. And they ask, when you are working in the industry and you come across a decision that you personally believe is unethical, uh, how might you go about changing this decision or speaking up? And are there any policies in place that guide ethical engineering? Look, this can be very, uh, this can be very difficult. And uh, I have encountered these on a number of occasions, and and uh, you know it can be you know it can be down to actually pers you know, um, personnel issues and and HR issues, and uh, and I I can recall very vividly. In fact, you know you're asking the question as replayed the movie in my head of of this particular circumstance where someone was being treated quite unfairly and unethically, and. Um, they approached me quietly and said, look, this is going on. And, and I, I tried really hard to bring that into the open in a way that was safe for that individual. Um, it, 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 was, it was very difficult. And in the end, it did not turn out satisfactorily at all, in my opinion. Uh, the person was disadvantaged. Um, and there was a great deal of reluctance on... Uh, her, it was a her her part to 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 you know to stand up and deal with the thing, and that's partly why it went wrong. I, I couldn't persuade her to trust me enough to look after the situation, but in the end, probably as a result of that lack of trust between her and me, not that she had anything against me, she just 
had realised that the the you know this was a very difficult situation. So there's an example where it didn't go at all as well as it might. Sometimes, on the other hand, sometimes, and I can think of situations where, uh, you know, on, a, I, on an alliance project I was working on, and I, I thought one of the members of the alliance who was, if you like, on the non-client side, the same side I was on, was seeking to take advantage of the situation, um, which ultimately would have brought benefit, financial benefit to, to me or to my company, rather. And yet I thought that the person was behaving unethically. And in the moment, I really struggled. And this is some time ago now. Uh, it, I'm able to say it was last century. Um, that's, that's, what, that's what the advantage of being old. So it was last century. And I struggled in the moment to deal with it. And, and when I finished with that, we didn't resolve it, but I, we finished with that. I, I went and I sought counsel from a very good friend of mine um, who was also providing consultant work on the project and said to him, let's call him Craig because that's his name. Craig, what, what, you know, what, you know, what can I do? How, what language do I need to deal with this? How, how do I approach it? And he gave me very good and wise counsel. And, and I won't go into the details because it's, it's, it's too convoluted, but basically he gave me some language to when then that group came together next to address it in a way that allowed the person to realise I was calling them on it, but calling them on a in a way that allowed them to um, be, be, be able to actually resolve the problem in a positive way, either by saying, yeah, sorry, I stuffed up or whatever and move forward. And that became a very powerful metaphor to me as to how to go about dealing with some of those things. And I could go through, you know, I could spend the next hour, I suppose, going through a range of examples where I've been in that situation. So it, it all comes down to sometimes you just got to front up to the tough question. Certainly seek assistance from, from a mentor or a colleague or someone that you can trust if you're struggling with how you might go about resolving it. But the reality is there's never there's never a better time than now to actually address address the situation. If you don't address those things that are being done unethically, it only gets worse. And, um, and then you'll find yourself in a difficult situation. The organisation may be in a difficult situation. It's, it's just so calling it out, getting help to understand how to do it um, and, and addressing it in a, a very generative way, trying to find a solution is, is my advice to you. But get, get help if you need help. Robert, I think, covered that brilliantly. I think the only th things that I would mention when I've talked with people about that in the past, I mean, the first key one is is that's also a very good reason why we should all maintain a network of mentors, people that, that yeah, you can yeah. talk about in confidence, that, that understand your profession, your obligations, and your own situation. And, and it, there'll be a range of responses. In a way, this is the classical ethical dilemma for a professional engineer, uh, what to speak up about in what ways, and the the situations I've observed, it partly it depends on is it a, is it an acute distinct thing or is it systematic and cultural? Mm. And if you speak up, will you be able to enact change? And there are sometimes things people see that are systematic. You know, maybe an entire industry. And if you're junior, 
you'll have to you'll have to weigh your career and maybe it's a situation where as you gain influence and power and maybe climb through you'll have opportunities to make it better um and you'll need to decide what that appropriate timing is it becomes a very personalized thing and i wouldn't want to tell anyone especially if they're being impacted by it that that they will have to make that choice. I wouldn't want to make the choice for anyone else. And there, there's lots of nuance and, and richness. But if it's acute versus systematic mm. and where you are in your career trajectory and everything else, those are all very reasonable to consider to determine what to do. But it, it is very difficult. Sometimes you have to walk away because you, you, can't, uh, you, you can't stay. Sometimes, sometimes that's an option. Mm. Great points. Uh, yeah, it's definitely very personalized. I think there are some universal, I think, as you put, there are some universal, and, it's, it's, and as you read more and you get into it, you know, ethics, morality, values, and the difference between them, and, and what's determined by a society, what's determined by the person, and what should be a universal truth, and always apply, and, and under disentangling the one from the other is, is part, but the benefit is, we engineers have a very systemizing technical mind, and so... I, my experience has been once we're kind of bootstrapped into it and we get the basics of it, we can really do some amazing things with, with ethical frameworks of thought. We just need to get that critical mass of knowledge to be able to engage our engineering mind. Yeah, that's very insightful points. And thank you for asking uh, from the audience as well. Um, we did go over a bit time so we might wrap up now so thank you for our guests uh for joining us today on the into the blueprint uh podcast and for your thoughts and words uh they're greatly appreciated by us and the community so if you missed out you can check out the podcast on facebook or spotify at sevsoc and make sure to tune into our next episode um I also highly recommend everyone to read into the report that both Travis and Robert uh, contributed to. Contributed to the, um, I'm sure it's on a lot of our course um, descriptions now, so it should be highly accessible. If not, it's on the school website, I believe. Um, yeah. So, if you had any last uh, messages from the speak uh, from the both of you, um, any lasting quotes? Or do you like to leave the audience? That'd be great as well. Um, Travis, do you want to hit that one off? No, no. Thank you all for listening. It's very appreciated. I, I, I'm glad you uh, uh, having uh, joined or been interested in the school and, and look forward to uh, everything into the future. And, and I'd echo those thoughts. I, I look forward to a really exciting period. And uh, I thank I thank you for your interest in this subject. And um, you know, if you've got any, you know, you know where you can find us. So uh, you <laughs> ask us any questions you you would like. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Uh, as well, you can also ask us at sebsoc at gmail.com if you have any questions. So, yeah, we'll just conclude this today's episode. Thank you, Travis, and thank you, Robert, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you all. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Make sure to follow us on Spotify to receive notifications for our new uploads. If you'd like to be part of our live podcast sessions with our speakers so you can ask them questions, Make sure to like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram to receive notifications for our live streams. You will also be able to ask questions anonymously via our link in the comment section. Until next time, 